Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. Um, I think even before I start, I just want to acknowledge that this week has been like kind of a particularly heavy week for a lot of you. So just want to make space for that and acknowledge it and we'll do a little bit more with it later in the meditation. So you guys know for the last few weeks we've been doing this sort of mini sermon series about the kingdom of God. And this morning I want to wrap that up by talking about the communion ritual that we do together every week. So I think it was two weeks ago we talked kind of at length about how from its beginning Christianity had this anti-empire bent to it and that flows from its Jewish roots. And we looked at how Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, about what that looks like, as well as like what it looks like in opposition to say the kingdom of Rome, which was the empire of his, of his day. And how unlike Rome, this kingdom of God asks its followers to like lay down power in order to elevate others, not to seek power or our own gain. So with such a, a strong like anti-empire streak in it, I don't think it's that surprising that our most common ritual speaks to that. Because after all, that first communion meal with Jesus and his disciples was a Jewish Passover meal. And that's a meal that celebrates Jewish liberation right from the Egyptian empire. So at its heart, communion is a meal of liberation from the traps of empire. And one of those traps is what Brene Brown calls the myth of scarcity. Let me type that in here. The myth of scarcity. And it's this idea that we don't have enough or that we aren't enough. Right? And we have this entire advertising industry built on this premise that we lack something, so we need to buy it. Right? So to counter that myth of scarcity, we partake in communion, which the other name for it is Eucharist. And Eucharist just comes from the Greek word Eucharisto, which means Thanksgiving. Here, I'll put that in the, in the chat for you. Eucharist comes from the Greek word Eucharisto. So in the traditional Eucharist blessing that you hear us say every week, whether it's me or Lorinda this week, or Cassie or Caroline or Molly, right? we say, for I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, took, the, he um, took bread, and after giving thanks, Eucharisto, he broke it. I was trying to copy and paste while saying the communion, that's why that got a little, I'm like, I've said it a million times, right? But it's after giving thanks, Eucharisto, he broke it. So some of us here, we've been reading a book together called Braiding Sweetgrass. And the author of that, Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer, she's a botanist who's from the Potawatomi tribe. And so in this chapters that we read last week together, I felt like she really wrote beautifully about how cultivating gratitude counters the scarcity mindset. So I'm going to put her whole quote in here from Braiding Sweetgrass because she summed it up so lovely. She said, while expressing gratitude seems innocent enough, it's a revolutionary idea. In a consumer society, Contentment is a radical proposition. Recognizing abundance rather than scarcity undermines an economy that thrives on creating unmet desires. Gratitude cultivates an ethic of fullness, but the economy needs emptiness. Gratitude reminds you that you already have everything that you need. Gratitude doesn't send you out shopping to find satisfaction. It comes as a gift rather than a commodity subverting the foundation of the whole economy. Right, so communion is our time of collective thanksgiving, 
that reminds us that we're not ruled by the appetites of empire, right? but rather we worship a God of abundance who will care for us. And in fact, we're told that empire is, is like a beast. That's actually the symbol that's used most often for it in the apocalyptic literature that we talked about last week. Right? We're told empire is like a beast. You see that in the book of Revelation and Daniel. And it warns us, like it's like a beast that's going to ravage you if you're not wise to it. But gratitude fortifies us, right? Gratitude reminds us that we have enough, we are enough, we rest in the care of God, and we're thankful. Right? So gratitude is counter-empire. We also talked a couple of weeks ago about how like the great advertising slogan of the Roman Empire was peace through war. Right? That was the motto that was inscribed on stones and monuments all throughout the empire, even at its like furthest outposts. And how the early followers of Jesus countered this with a kingdom whose ethos was peace through justice rather than peace through war. I'm going to copy and paste that. Peace through justice rather than peace through war. Right, so what's that look like at the communion table? Well, every week we declare that Jesus was meant to be humanity's last scapegoat. Right? So the last thing that we say when we are breaking bread, we say we proclaim his death until he comes again. Right? That his death was enough to show us the foolishness of scapegoating. And so we remember that and we proclaim it every week because scapegoating is this human habit. And when communities enter into times of like intense disagreement, like our community now, our national community, right? We know that we're prone to finding an innocent person or an innocent group of people to blame for all of the ills. And sometimes there are multiple scapegoats. And I think we're all pretty aware of that in our own social dynamic. And the thing is, is that it works, right? Finding scapegoats to blame allows the larger group to avoid dealing with these like really difficult matters of social injustice, right? Dealing fairly with social injustice usually entails people in the majority group laying down some of their power for the sake of elevating people who have been treated like second-class citizens, right? So Christians believe Jesus became humanity's representative scapegoat. We believe that this story of him represents the entire human story. And we believe that we're in that story as the humans who declared Jesus, this representative scapegoat, guilty. And we killed him. Right? But he wasn't guilty. He was innocent, as most scapegoats are, at least of what they're accused. And so God overturned our death sentence to bring Jesus back to life. And in doing that, God declared this entire system of scapegoating, this entire cycle of violence, and how we humans try to manage it just foolish. It's not the way to find long-lasting peace. Jesus said, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Right? You don't get to sacrifice your scapegoats to maintain peace. That needs to be done. And so resisting that impulse to scapegoat others is, I think, ultimately the path of following Jesus. That's what ultimately sums up what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that we become a disciple of Jesus when we convert from being part of that accusing mob right? Satan means accuser, to being an advocate for the vulnerable. And paraclete, which is the Greek word for the Holy Spirit, means advocate, right? So we move from operating in a spirit of being part of the accusing mob to working in the spirit of the advocate, advocating for the vulnerable. 
But what this conversion leaves us with, right, if we're not scapegoating, it's the need to work through our differences without scapegoating. And that takes a lot of time and a lot of skill, and it takes peacemaking and a lot of trust building. And it takes creating a society where the vulnerable are safe enough to be heard. And then where justice for those who have been hurt is not only taken seriously, but it's allowed to help us actually reimagine entire systems, you know, like abolishing private prisons, rethinking whether police are the appropriate people to respond to mental health calls, right? We have to be willing to reimagine these things for justice. And so the choices become you can scapegoat, you can go to war, which we all kind of feel the violence bubbling up in our society in different pockets, right? Or you can do the hard work of justice and reconciliation. And that latter work is what we call like the kingdom of God. So during communion, we remind ourselves every week that Jesus was supposed to be the last scapegoat, right? He was treated unjustly, God vindicated him. And so we in turn are to treat other people justly and to welcome them into the full belonging in the community of faith. And we remember that Jesus even tied his own death and resurrection to that larger narrative of liberation, right? Liberation from these pathologies of empire. It's like he said, every time you guys tell this story, every time you're sitting at Passover meal or every time you take communion, every time you talk about God rescuing you from the imperial tyranny of Egypt or Babylon or Rome or America, it's like saying, remember, here's the secret to not turning into what you despise. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the secret to not turning in to what you despise and fear. Greater love has no one than this, that a person lay down their life for their friends. Right? That we lay down our life and our power before we unjustly rob another person of the same. And so at the table of Jesus, everyone is welcome. Like there's no second-class citizens here. And at the table of Jesus, it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter your level of belief. It doesn't matter what you've done or who you are, that you are accepted as family at this table. And no one's allowed to impose their own table rules. Right? No one's allowed to tell somebody that they're not allowed to serve the food or that they need to go and eat at a little side table. The only rule is that you, in turn, must welcome others in the same way. Right? And so we understand that none of us here has done anything to earn a place at this table, that we're here by the grace of God. And then we extend that grace and that mercy that we've received to others. And as Molly intuited last week when she led communion, we talked a little bit about sort of the collapse of the dimensions a little. And she talked about how we believe that when we take communion, we're in the presence of all those who have come before us, as well as those who will come after. There's this idea, this sort of mystical idea that time collapses in this place. And perhaps that's like a foretaste of a coming time when all of the dimensions will combine. And so we believe that God can be felt really keenly in this ritual, right? That it's, it's like a, a thin spot in the fabric of space-time when we commune with God and with each other and with all of the saints who were, who are, who still will be, as well as with the elements of the earth. Right, that we take into our bodies in the form of bread or juice or whatever we have on hand, M&Ms or Pop-Tarts or whatever we're taking communion with. 
right? And in doing that, we remember that God isn't some abstract thing that's like out there, but that God is real and present in and among us, right? In the everyday parts of life. And for that, that's what we're saying, thank you, right? We're saying when we take communion, like long live the revolution of Jesus. And may we live these lives that counter the damaging aspects of empire, of like power and domination, and live among this table as if though a, real, a different reality already exists that we bear witness to. So I've been thinking a little bit about um, just like what it means to be a community of Jesus in a time when there is so much social anxiety, right? And I mentioned at the top, like this week has been a lot. I mean, I think like for queer people, that Supreme Court, you know, like, hey, please send us a case so we can overturn gay marriage watching Kamala Harris just take it left and right and being patronized like every woman and I'm sure every black woman, Asian American woman has ever had to deal with. Um, and I don't wanna, it is different if you're a minority woman than just being a white woman too. Like just watching that, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be um, a person of color watching that too. And then having Gretchen Whitmer, our own governor, like being stalked like prey it was just this like, oh, all of these feelings where even if you're like kind of doing one of those things where you're like, I'm trying not to read the news for my own, you know, peace of mind, it's still just kind of in the ether and we feel it. And so I was thinking about that and in in this idea of communion, and I thought we would do this for a meditation of just kind of imagining ourselves at this large either feast or banquet, whatever like feels like home to you with people who have gone before you, who you love, people who you love now, people who will be like kind of imagining this space that is this safe space to hold this and where we can sort of offer some of these anxieties or worries in our life, even if it's um, work or kid related, like there's just so much right now. And I was thinking about how, I think I said last week, I'm 90% peace, 10% panic. I think this week that probably shifted a little bit. <laughs> there was a lot more panic. <laughs> and I was thinking like, but it's okay because it's not on me alone to hold out hope, right? That we can, we can hold these emotions and hold these fears as a community. And I don't mean that in like an unhealthy way, like, oh, you need to hold other people's emotions, but more just like it's a communally held um, it's a community of hope that can hold these things together. And so you don't need to feel hope all of the time or happy all the time because that hope is being carried um, by all of us, right? It's not by us alone. It's being carried by this community that bears witness to this different way of living. And so I found that a little bit um, when I was praying this week and walking, just thinking about how like even our church community, we kind of hold that together. And that gave me a lot of comfort, just imagining all of us like almost like standing like with our hands together and just kind of holding that together. And that felt like, um, like a very just supportive space for me. So I think for our meditation, I would invite you if you'd like to, and if you don't have kids that are making it impossible right now, to just kind of get comfortable. Let's start by just taking maybe like three really deep breaths. maybe in through the nose, out through the mouth.
I invite you to imagine what this um, banquet or feast would look like for you. And think about like who's there and what kind of food is on the table. And let's start by just taking a few moments to just look around and notice in our imaginations what's happening. Now I would invite you to just name some of the things that have really been causing you a lot of um, worry, or stress. And if maybe you've had a great week, maybe just something that you're particularly thankful for. And if you could even envision like placing that on the table and everyone else placing theirs on the table together. let's just hold that thought. We're going to take communion in just a moment. We'll have a little bit more communal prayer of other things that we're holding together. And then I would invite you that when we take communion, when Lorinda leads that, that as we take it, that you just kind of remember that you're part of this larger table where all of these things are being held and that it's not on you alone. <laughs> 